science. this is the best day of your life but i bet it's a pretty good afternoon in the course of your week because you're listening to love and science here on uh, bcfm radio and uh, i am joined most delightfully by the uh, excellent hannah bestwick hi hannah and uh, the astronomical Oh, uh, Andrew Glass. Hey, that's pretty good. That's I pretty good, isn't it? I didn't know what I was going to get, but astro- I'll take astronomical. <laughs> I'll take it. Could have been a lot worse. Uh, it's great to uh, see you in your um, silver shell suit, Andrew, with your, <laughs> your normal aluminium hat on, <laughs> as usual. To protect me from them aliens. Yes, that doesn't worry me at all. <laughs> and uh, we've got some, um, well, we've got some, go- we've got a couple of great interviews coming up, and uh, we'll introduce them as they come, but they're to do with spacey stuff. Yeah, they are. Outer spacey stuff. Absolutely. And uh, that's very, very exciting. And, uh, but we're going to start with a, a biological thing, sort of. I say biological. I, I think in terms of space and biology with Hannah and Andrew. <laughs> because uh, uh, Hannah's the sort of more biological. So anything medical, this is medical. That goes to you, Hannah. Okay. And, and uh, of course, there, there are a lot of people who really struggle with... Um, various uh, uh, psychotic uh, difficulties, um, uh, psychosis rather, we should put it, uh, uh, the word psychotic has a rather unfortunate meaning, I meant to say psychosis, apologies for that. And um, uh, part of that, of course, is is, um, uh, uh, an illness such as schizophrenia, where you can't really tell the difference between voices inside your head and outside your head and this is this is frighteningly common and actually lots of people uh, experience uh, hearing voices and uh, or seeing things and so on um, but would regard themselves as completely normal and um, uh, so you know we shouldn't just write it off to people who are very seriously ill it's something which which uh, lots of us can experience anyway this story is it's called avatar therapy uh, and uh, i think this is a, we picked this up from the bbc avatar therapy reduces the power of schizophrenia voices so you you had a look at this yeah it's Anna. really interesting so it's a conductor sort of led by professor tom craig of king's college london and just uh, to go back to what you were saying about uh, schizophrenia it's what's often called like a an invisible disability it's yeah. like looking at the person you wouldn't know but look like most mental illness you wouldn't wouldn't often know that someone is is dealing with that yeah and this is it's a new proposal of a kind of therapy to help reduce the power of the voices not necessarily the prevalence but like the power they have over the person who's experiencing them because at the moment current therapies involve things like counseling and drug treatment and on those two therapies still a quarter of people do experience voices um still and they can be threatening and uh offensive as well to the people who are experiencing them. So this is a study of about 150 people that was conducted where they, um, 75 had the normal counselling and about 75 had uh, the opportunity to create these avatars. Now they created their own avatar, this kind of digital representation of what they think the, the, 
what a person behind the voice might look like. So they don't often see the person, uh, but they create this representation. And then their therapist would uh, speak as the avatar, as the voice, and also as themselves in the therapist's seat. And what they found is that after uh, 12 weeks uh, of six sessions of uh, this treatment, speaking to the avatar as if it's a real person... Yeah. Um, the they were twice as likely. It, it was found to be twice as effective at reducing the occurrence of the hearing voices wow. than the regular therapies, such as cognitive behavioural therapy and just um, and drug treatment. Well, that's incredible, yeah, isn't it, it? After twenty four weeks, they did find it to be just as effective as the normal treatments, though. Okay. Um, so what they think is potentially if you have this like as a having booster sessions, like having a booster vaccination, a booster session to uh, keep the the effectiveness up. Which is really interesting because I think one thing about it is like um, it's it may be just as effective after 24 weeks, but it improves how quickly you reach that point, yes. which is like um, not seeing change for a long time can be really di- like disheartening for somebody who's trying to deal with mental illness. And if yeah. you can improve the, the start of that journey, that could be really beneficial for some people like getting into therapy as yes. well. And, and reading the story, it's a, a lot to do with control, isn't it? That pe- people are learning that um, uh, it's not the voices yeah. that control them, but they can control Absolutely. the voices. Voices, and and that's a key thing. Yeah, learning to to be able to stand up to the voices, as it were, to to be able to say no because they're so threatening. It can sometimes be uh, really scary to try and tell the yeah. voice no, like or that you don't want to do what it's saying. And yeah. so it's sort of uh, learning that you can, that it's safe to to do so. And I did I did wonder. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen the TED talk by Eleanor Longden. No, I've not seen that, no. So she she had a diagnosis of schizophrenia when she was younger. It's called Voices in My Head. And it's it's a really interesting, listen, it's a really interesting journey that she's been on. And she talks about how she would try and fight the voices to begin with and try and shut them down. And they just got more and more aggressive and more angry when she did that until she realized what it was. And then she started to um, notice them as something that was... um, representative of like fears that she was having and speaking Mm. about that but in more violent terms Mm. and then what she started to just set them aside and be a bit more be Mm. mindful of them being like yes i am like i understand what you're trying to say but i'm going to do something different kind Mm. of um almost like having a discussion with it they became much less violent much more peaceful much more helpful Mm. and i think this is along the same vein of learning just to live alongside your voices which i think helps to settle them as Mm. well in some people but you think well how frightening Mm. Not not to be able to tell. You hear a voice. You don't know if it's real. I I think of that film um, about John Nash, A Beautiful Mind. Oh yeah, yeah. Which uh, John John Nash, the uh, mathematician. I don't know if you've seen it. I haven't seen that myself. No. Um, And and they make the point that uh, he has. You know, he hears voices. People actually come and speak to him and Mm. visit him. And because he he's a brilliant, high functioning mathematician to whom we owe that humans owe an enormous amount, and yet he struggled his whole life uh, with schizophrenia and with with um, uh, psychotic episode, uh, episodes episodes I used that term in the right way yeah you can see yeah that. and and and, and um, he uh, uh, basically d- realized that the people that gave him the most difficulty didn't age that some of these figures came uh, yeah, and course. they didn't age yeah and he oh. said he and he used his reasoning to say so you're not real so right. I can talk to you, mm. but you're not real. 
and uh, you think, wow, how, 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 yeah. what a thing to live with. Yeah, no, you completely. I, yet, I, I have, um, as, as you may know, if you listen to this program, I have a camper van which I turn into a cinema and mm. uh, show short science films mm. in it. One of the films I show is made by somebody who is a voice hearer, and it's, it's an incredibly impactful film where he just, he's sitting in a forest and then he uses the, uh, just to show off a bit now, my camper van has surround sound. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he's, he's sitting in this forest and it uses the full uh, surround sound and the voices come from the different areas and he's just talking to you about how it is to be in his mind and that his mind is like the forest and there is these voices coming from all around the forest and you don't know, he doesn't know whether it's a real thing behind the tree or it's his his voice. But he, he at the same time he does know that it's him but each time they're speaking to him he can't make that connection and mm. that's that's i think why this 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 avatar therapy is really fascinating for me having that having that knowledge of that particular person because i think it's probably yeah, different for lots um, of people what's the name of the the filmmaker do you do you know i don't know i'm afraid okay, that's fine we'll yeah. find out another time yeah yeah definitely it sounds um, amazing really yeah you have to watch it in my camp van clearly that's <laughs> <the thing>. <laughs> <laughs> now let's just move on to a, 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 another story before we go to our uh, interview um there are particles that are known as ghost particles and millions billions of them stream through us right now so if you're sitting listening to us in your car or your front room or your kitchen or wherever you are there are billions of these things going through your body at any one time bit of a shock mm. uh, except that except uh, they do us no harm oh that's good yeah uh, unless you what now there was a, a film oh don't Yes, and what was the film 2012. called? 2012. 2012, where yes. apparently the neutrinos are mutating. Yeah. <laughs> Which, don't worry, f it doesn't happen. No, the tagline for that film is 2012, literally the worst film ever made. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's got some competition, <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah. Um, and um, a new study demonstrates that some of these subatomic particles are stopped in their tracks when they reach our planet. Yeah. It's, yeah, I, do, I, I, I mean, I, what, what's interesting about them, of course, is that they interact so weakly and so mm. feebly mm. Um, that, uh, that, 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 that uh, they can just pass through uh, a light year of lead. That's 10 trillion kilometers. Light year, remember, is a measurement of distance. Um, uh, or one, one of the things that it is is a measurement of distance. Um, 10 trillion kilometers, that would be, of lead without hitting an atom. Right. So that's pretty impressive, isn't that it? That is impressive. I've been trying to imagine that in my mind since I read the article and I, I just cannot. Yeah. My brain is not capable of, of imagining what that might be like or what that would look like. And it just, these things just absolutely blow my mind. Yeah. It's incredible, isn't it? Well, is this thing called the ice cube detector? Yes. Yes. Yeah, Please which tell is us. which it doesn't detect ice cubes. It's in uh, <laughs> it's, it's in the Antarctic. That Antarctica. would be really useful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's one. And, um, <laughs> Good. Let's go home. <laughs> uh, but it is shaped like a cube, and it's on ice basically. Oh, nice. And um, it's in the Antarctic, and it, yeah, it it it, uh, it detects not the the neutrinos themselves. That would be ridiculous, as we've just been discussing. Yeah. Uh, but the effect that they have on other things mm. um, uh, for example uh, muons another particle would be an offshoot of that sort of thing I yes believe. this is another part of the family sure. of um, subatomic particles yep. muons named for a 
a cat that discovered them. <laughs> Is that what? Uh, yeah, what? okay. <laughs> There's the joke. Mew ons. Oh, oh, there we go. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. I see. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. And glue ons, something to do with nails, I think. Yes. I'm not sure. Yes. <laughs> I t- to be honest with you, I'd, I first saw this article and this. this this paper coming out about this and i thought hang on a second this is rewriting physics they shouldn't be interacting these no. neutrinos shouldn't be interacting turns out they should yeah it's yeah. it sounds really almost sounds almost quite defeated the line where it says the uh, the standard theory is again correct <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like oh i'm really sorry yeah. dude <laughs> and the reason that these ones particularly are um uh, interacting is because they are such high energy particles uh, high energy uh, neutrinos and we would expect those high energy neutrinos to interact with our planet yes so it's actually telling us what we should what we ought to happen so we should should we should explain these aren't the ones that come from (coughs) deep deep space um these these uh, are of another kind and they do exactly what we predict them to do. And we should say, <clears throat> just to Hannah, j- just mentioned the standard model there, we have an idea of how the universe works. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it, it has to do with the Big Bang Theory and all of that kind of thing. Not the television programme, but the <laughs> actual Big Bang Theory. And, and um, uh, basically, everything we're finding at the moment from the, the famous Higgs boson... Uh, to experiments like this, just say, yeah, it seems to be working. Yeah. Everything we're finding out seems to confirm this rather than to uh, disprove it. So there we go. All right. Well, um, we were going to have a piece of music. We're going to drop that and we're going to go uh, straight to an interview that Andrew did uh, with a man called Doug Vak- uh, is it Vakoch or Vakok? Vakoch. Vakoch. Uh, Just set this up for us, Andrew. Uh, Well, um, uh, you probably noticed that um, recently an organisation called METI sent a message out to the nearest habitable planet uh, outside of our solar system. So there is a planet about 12 light years away from us where it's far enough away from its star and close enough to its star that it could have liquid water on it it is the closest candidate for life outside our solar system we talked about it a little bit last week and then john ford who follows us Mm. with john ford getting bristol home yes he asked me on that show put me on the spot a little bit so i have to be honest with you and asked me whether our conversation like the one we're having now would yeah. also be going out into space yeah and i thought well i think it probably was but yeah i thought do you know what i'm going to ask a man who would know so i asked doug vakoch but i first asked him what meti is meti can be contrasted with seti so many people have heard of the search for extraterrestrial intelligence this is something astronomers have been doing uh, since 1960 using radio telescopes to look for intentional signals from uh, other civilizations and around other stars but METI reverses the process uh, and we send powerful intentional signals with the hope of eliciting a reply so this is going out on a local radio station here in bristol bcfm and i'm just wondering whether this conversation that we're having now is being broadcast out into space at the same time you know One of the changes of uh, telecommunications, radio and uh, television, uh, over the past few years has been uh, a shift to more communications across fiber optics. Uh, And so uh, it may well be some of the radio transmissions are still going out into space, but those 
communications are much more diffuse because what we want to do when we send radio signals and TV signals here on Earth is to reach the widest audience possible. So they're going in all directions. That's quite different from what we're doing with Maddie because we're focusing uh, all of the energy at one point in the sky so, so that uh, it can be a much stronger signal. But it's the same sort of technology. And, you know, we humans at this point do not have the capacity uh, to pick up the level of leakage radiation that is going out now or that went out when the signals were even stronger uh, a, a couple of decades ago. Uh, but if we imagine the increase of uh, capacities of our radio telescopes we've seen since radio astronomy began in the 1930s, we can we will have the ability to detect our own relatively weak leakage radiation uh, out to a distance of, uh, say, 500 light years in just the next couple of centuries. So we're really on the cusp uh, of being able to detect even some of these weak signals, but just as Earth has gotten more silent uh, over the decades as we use more targeted uh, communications, so satellites directly targeting the Earth uh, or using fiber optic communications, we are becoming less evident. Uh, and so METI is a way of uh, letting other civilizations know uh, not only are we here, which we assume they've already been able to pick up, but we are interested in making contact. Yeah, okay. So how long has METI been around and how many sort of messages have you sent out? Is it, does it work like that? It, it does work. You know, uh, there have been a handful of messages that have been sent out by various groups over the years. Our organization, uh, based in San Francisco, was founded in 2015. And we have just now, uh, in October, sent out our first message. This is a message sent from the um, IceCat transmitter uh, in northern Norway, north of the Arctic Circle. This is a, a facility that's typically used to study the upper atmosphere to uh, understand the northern lights, aurora borealis. Uh, but it can, and so radio signals are bounced off the atmosphere. A small fraction of them come back, and it lets us say something about the composition, the structure of the atmosphere. Uh, but that same telescope can be adapted to pinpoint a particular star. Uh, and so our first transmission, uh, in cooperation with a Barcelona-based music festival, Sonar, uh, went out uh, in October 16th, 17th, and 18th. We transmitted on three successive days. And the target uh, is a red dwarf star that is a mere 12.4 light years away. It's called Leuton Star. Uh, the other name for it is GJ273b. Uh, and actually, the, the B part refers to an exoplanet that orbits it. So uh, there is a planet that is a super-Earth, a bit bigger than the Earth, but it's at just the right distance from that star that it could support liquid water. And so this is the closest known uh, potentially habitable exoplanet thing that can be targeted from northern Norway. Okay. What's the message? What have you said to yeah. the potential inhabitants of that planet? We have sent a message that, um, first of all, SETI scientists uh, uh, around Leuton Star would be able to confirm, because that's the biggest challenge that SETI astronomers have. We find a signal, it looks good, but if it doesn't repeat, what do you make of it? Mm -hmm. uh, and so our signal, 
each day of the transmission repeats twice, so it's sent a total of three times each day, and then 24 hours later we go back and send the same message, and then uh, 48 hours later go back and send the same message, and in April 2018 we'll go, we'll go back six months later so that the astronomers uh, who are looking for the signals will be able to contact their buddies at other observatories and say, uh, hey, are you able to see this as well? Mm. So that's one of the fundamental characteristics of how we designed the message. But but you asked about the content specifically. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I wish I could tell you that the folks on uh, GJ273B would speak English or French or Swahili. It's not going to happen. Yeah. So we, we need to think about the universal language that we have. Uh, and, you know, the only thing that we have in common is this signal that we are sending and they're receiving. And so then the question is, what do they have to know to pick up our signal? Well, if they can build a radio antenna, that means they're good engineers. And it seems like to, to build something of that magnitude on any world, you need to know a little basic math and physics. Two plus two equals four. So that's what we start with our tutorial. We teach them how we count, um, how we do basic arithmetic, and then the rest of the message revolves around describing the nature of the signal itself. Because, again, we're sending two slightly different frequencies. It's, think of it as sending ones and zeros, a binary message. And we then make reference to that signal itself. So it's at two different frequencies. When we introduce the idea of a radio frequency, we can describe that numerically, but then point to one frequency and the other frequency. Mm -hmm. When we talk about time, we can do it by sending pulses of a certain duration. It, so that that's what the extraterrestrials actually have. That's the, the raw data that they have. So we're making our message uh, tightly linked to that message itself. Because, you know, it, it would be nice to think it's going to be easy to understand an extraterrestrial. I think it'll be very tough. So our goal is to get across at least a few essentials for this first message, and then follow up uh, six months later with something even more representative of us as human beings. Okay. And it, is, is this the first that they would hear from us? Is there anything else that has gone out from us that could have reached them by now? Yeah, they are also hearing I Love Lucy and the BBC and all of these other transmissions that have gone out if they're just a tiny bit more advanced than we are. You say another 100, 200 years more advanced than we are. Mm -hmm. uh, now, if we had our SETI systems uh, at their location, we wouldn't be able to detect ourselves. Mm -hmm. But we have been advancing. The communications capabilities are expanding exponentially. All the, and so uh, just a little bit more advanced, and they would be able to know we're here. But what they're missing... And what we're trying to give them is a sense that we really want to make contact. Yeah. Because the, the, the Italian physicist Enrico Fermi raised this puzzle back in 1950. He said, you know, if, if in fact there are intelligent beings everywhere, why haven't we seen them? It's called the Fermi paradox. Yeah. And one answer to the Fermi paradox is maybe, in fact, intelligent beings are much more widespread than we had thought. But they are simply out there, maybe even at the nearest stars, observing us. Um, but it's they're observing us almost like we observe animals in the zoo. It's called the zoo hypothesis. But what happens if you go to the zoo and you're watching a bunch of zebras interacting with one another, but all of a sudden one of those zebras turns directly toward you, looks you in the eye, and starts pounding out a series of prime numbers? 
that that establishes a very different relationship yeah. and you probably respond and so that's what we're trying to do to evoke a response so that i mean at one level that's the way this could succeed uh, but if you think about it a bit what that requires is that the entire galaxy is chock full of alien civilizations i think a more realistic scenario is that we need to repeat this process of targeting an individual star multiple times but do it with a thousand stars or maybe a million stars before we actually find one that's inhabited. So this is an inherently long-term project. We could get a reply back within 25 years, but as we go further and further out, that round-trip exchange time gets greater and greater. And I think that's been the greatest inhibition of doing this, is simply that we human beings are not very good at thinking in the long term. So for me, if we simply have humans listening for that reply uh, in 2043, I would think the project is a, a big success just in terms of being able to plan something that long term and execute it. And to, to make it a little bit easier, we uh, when we go back in April and send our final message, we'll let the extraterrestrials know the specific date that we are going to be listening. And it's June 21st, 2043, the summer solstice in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, because as we think in terms of long-term transmissions, transmissions that may occur over the course of centuries or millennia, we also need to think of finding significant dates uh, that are tied into natural cycles of our Earth. Because who knows, given changes of culture and practice, you know what the important holidays are going to be in the future. But that's something that's actually determined by the motions of the Earth. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I I can kind of imagine on the summer solstice in that it, was it twenty forty three. Twenty forty three. Yeah, I can imagine a huge party. I imagine quite a lot of parties going on, and um, to my mind, this is all good. But there have been criticisms. There have there there are concerns, particularly from people like Stephen Hawking, saying we shouldn't be sending out messages. W- what do you say to that? Well, I say whenever anyone as brilliant as Stephen Hawking raises a concern, you have to take it seriously. Yeah. But but as I look at it more closely, it seems to me he has missed one point, which is that any civilization that has the ability to travel between the stars already has the capability to detect our leakage radiation. So we're not letting them know that we're here for the first time. That's the big concern I hear. Oh, they, they we're, we're able to hide and we shouldn't uh, announce ourselves because they don't know we're here. You know, it's true again. If we have a twin of Earth's technology at uh, even the nearest star, we wouldn't know of our existence. But we also don't have the ability to travel between the stars. If you get just a couple of centuries more advanced than we are, then we have the capability of detecting our level of leakage radiation 500 light years away. So uh, I just cannot imagine a scenario in which a, an alien civilization, a hostile civilization that wants to do us harm, uh, wouldn't already know that we're here. And, and we don't even have to think about just the leakage radiation, the television and radio that Earth has been sending off for the last 70 or 80 years. For two and a half billion years, our atmosphere has been giving off the evidence uh, that we have uh, microbial life on Earth. And so if you have an especially paranoid civilization out there that wants to, I don't know, wipe out the competition, they've had a lot of time to do it, and there's no evidence that they've been here. Yeah. So so I don't find, I don't, you know, I think it's really important that we 
that we look at concerns because this, you know, what we what we find psychologists tell us that when we go into an unknown situation, we try to assess the risks by drawing upon the most vivid images that come to mind. It, it's called the availability heuristic. That we pick the images that are most available to our memory. And what could be more vivid a uh, notion of a first contact than an alien invasion? But just because it vividly comes to mind and is reinforced by Hollywood blockbusters, it doesn't mean it's realistic. And so I would just say, let's look at the specific scenario and see whether it really is a risk. You're listening to Love and Science on BCFM Radio. There's a story uh, which is, it is very exciting, I think, whether you are an astronomer or not, that um, we have been visited by an alien uh, that is not from our own, uh, uh, our own system. Our own solar system, an asteroid has visited us from interstellar space. So it's not a a living creature. It's a huge lump of rock shaped like a cigar, Andrew. Yeah, funny old shape. Um, Very funny old shape and uh, lots of uh, thoughts about why it is like that. We'll hear a bit more about that in in a minute. 19th of October, this thing was seen. Um, and its speed and its trajectory strongly suggested that it came from another star. Yeah. That's spooky stuff. Yeah. Well, it, it seems to have come from uh, Vega, which is a star in the constellation Lyra. And there's actually a, uh, a, a, a new project been set up to try and get um, a, a spacecraft go and chase it, which is difficult enough, as mm. you might imagine, yeah. which is called Project Lyra. But I met up this week with uh, Leanne Stadden, who actually studies some of the oldest material here on planet Earth, right here in Bristol. Um, and I talked to her about that. But since she knows a little bit thing or two about rocks and space, we started talking about Oumuamua. I did actually look up the Hawaiian um, term for this, and it means um, first traveller from afar or something like that, which is a very nice name. And what's got everyone very excited is this is the first kind of interstellar object we've ever found in our solar system. Mm. And what makes it even more exciting for a geologist like me, it's not a comet. Um, it looks like an asteroid. And we know this because as it passed really near the sun, whenever we, a comet passes near the sun, we get something called a coma, which you can see in the sky from these long tails and the very blurry look about it. And we don't seem to have that in this, which suggests that there's not much water on it, which is indicative of really rocky objects. Um, and that's very exciting. That's really exciting. Yeah. And it, how do we know that it's not from our solar system? Um, so what people have done is they looked at the trajectory of it. Um, and if you look at long orbit comets they have a very distinct trajectory and this one does not fit with any of those it has this very kind of hyperbolic orbit to it and we know it was moving very fast when it came into the solar system um so we can track this orbit and we can see that it doesn't seem to be originated from the solar system where it came from then they're, they're not really sure yeah. um but i think they're pretty convinced it's definitely not from the solar system okay but it, it must have come from some sort of other solar system so there's a lot of theories about this because the shape of this thing is quite unusual. They've called it like a squash cigar um, because it's got an aspect rent length ratio of like 10 to 1, which is very unusual in our solar system. So some of the theories about how it formed was that perhaps some planet, there were two planets colliding and then it got thrown out and then we retained that long shape because it froze that long shape. And another theory is a similar sort of thing with a supernova um, and that supernovas are very violent. 
planet was destroyed and then we had this kind of elongate uh, shape derived from that. So clearly it was somehow ejected through some sort of process within the uh, solar system that it came from itself. Mm. So I... I've not heard of anything like this before. Is there a reason why we're seeing... Is this very rare, or have we just started being able to detect them, or what is it? They were saying in their paper that they've just got the resolution of the system down. I think it's development and system that they've been looking at. And they did they do estimate in the paper, based on their kind of models, that at any moment there should be one um, interstellar object within the orbit of Earth that's oh, about 250 metres across, which is very exciting. It is, exciting. <laughs> um, is it dangerous, though? I mean, are they likely to hit our planet? It's the same... You're, you're grasping into the same areas that we do with kind of other near-Earth objects, and that there is always a chance. Um, but scientists now are very good at kind of looking at these orbits and saying, could this thing hit Earth? Will it hit Earth? Could it hit Earth in the future? We can model things very well now. And... Realistically, I think it's probably the same as any other 800-metre asteroid in the solar system. We can track it, we can model it. If it happens, we can probably deal with it. Okay. <laughs> this isn't your research, no. particularly. So what, what are you looking at yourself? Um, so my area of interest is actually the early Earth. Um, so kind of the first billion years of Earth history. The period known as the Hadean, which is, means hidden, and it's stretched from about the beginnings of Earth, about 4.5 to about four billion years and sort of the early Archean and um, I focus on an area called Jack Hills in Western Australia which about 8 out of 10 geologists have probably heard of because it's a bit of geological royalty mm-hmm. um, because this is a place where we find really really old minerals so the rock record on Earth only stretches back to I think 4.02 billion just to be exact okay. and um, here in Jack Hills we get individual grains of a mineral called zircon the date to 4.37 billion, so it's 350 million years longer than the rock record. Wow. Which is amazing. That's absolutely amazing when you think about it. Old rocks on Earth actually constitute a very small proportion of the Earth. I think it's something ridiculous, like in single percents. And this is because on Earth we have this very unique feature called plate tectonics, and crust is constantly being formed and recycled at mid-ocean ridges which are kind of everything that underlies our big oceans. There's a massive um, North Atlantic ridge going through the middle of the Atlantic. And it's constantly being subducted as subduction zones, reprocessed, uh, orogenic, things called orogenic belts, such as the Himalaya, where we get these massive mountain ranges where two plates collide. So that's why we don't get rocks all the same age on Earth. Okay. Um, because there's constantly these formation processes, which seem to set it apart from other planets. Yeah. So we know on Mars, Mars is... I don't want to say geologically dead because it isn't um, but we've got evidence of recent volcanism but there's no evidence of plate tectonics Venus is pretty active and we think it's being resurfaced um, I think recently about 500 million years ago um, and that's but it doesn't have plate tectonics and on Earth plate tectonics allows it to be cooled whereas on Venus we don't have that it sits the mantle builds up and gets too hot and it suddenly all comes out and resurfaces the planet How much of the rock on Earth would have come from space? It's not that large a proportion. And so on Earth, we see... When we look at other planets, we see a lot of craters. We don't see that on Earth, again, because of plate tectonics. But when you think about a meteoritic bombardment, especially over the last three billion years, we haven't... It really died down. Mm. We had something called the late heavy bombardment about 3.84 billion years ago. Um, but apart from that, we don't see much that much influx as we did in the early Earth. So it's probably minuscule. Yeah. So most of it is 
So we're made we're made from those meteorites in the beginning. Yeah. But it's become Earth. Okay. So that's why this one that this not meteorite, but this this extra solar. Yeah. Rock it's is, so exciting. Yeah. Brilliant. Love to get a bit of it. Yeah. <laughs> so when you when you're studying the rock that you're studying here in Bristol mm-hmm. and you've got it, have you physically gone to Australia to get it? Yeah, I was lucky enough to go out in to Australia last summer on field work um, for a couple of weeks. Um, so this place called Jack Hills, the only way I can describe it is about 800 kilometres north of Perth. It's in the middle of the outback. Didn't No running water, no electricity for two weeks. Um, best shower of my life when I came back. <laughs> and yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. I could live in the outback. It's yeah. amazing. It's really warm. <laughs> are, you, are, you, are you actually rummaging around in the dirt looking for things? Is that no, so... Um, these individual minerals are, have been recycled, so they're not actually in their original rocks. They're in something called a conglomerate, which is basically a sedimentary rock that's had tons of other little bits and bobs put in it as it's um, formed. And what you have to do is you have to go out and collect that rock, come back, crush it up, pick out the individual grains, and then analyse them. Um, it's, it's a lot of effort, but yeah. they are worth it. Yeah. So my main area of focus it isn't actually on these zircons. It's on minerals associated with the zircons. So I study something called chromite. But what's interesting is that chromite forms in a completely different rock type to these zircons. So by looking at the chromite, trying trying to date it, and looking at the chemistry of it, we can try and compare it to the zircon record, which are a lot easier to date. Okay. How do you date it? <laughs> so zircon, we use something called uranium lead radiometric dating. So, um, so you have a parent isotope of uranium and a daughter isotope of lead and zircon's great because zircon only takes in uranium it doesn't like lead but over time we can measure how much lead has formed in that zircon through that decay of uranium we know that there was no lead in there at the beginning so we can get absolute age based on how much lead is in that zircon now okay right so i'm I'm going back to the space story now so if those rocks are Traveling from outside our solar system, mm-hmm. these techniques that you're using, would you, would we have to actually go and get a sample and return? To yes, the I think to date it, definitely. Uh, we could probably, if it was close enough, we could probably get some reasonable spectra off of it. Um, that's how they know it's probably red um, in color. It'd be great to get some spectra because it could tell us a rough composition of it. Um, mm-hmm. In the same way with remote sensor things like Mars. And one thing I would say, so its surface reflectivity is very similar to something called D-type asteroids, which form in the Kuiper belt. So we know that things out in the Kuiper belt are dominantly cometary in, material, in origin, and these things have water, they have organics. It's the same way when we went out to Pluto, we saw Sharon, we could see that they had this very organic rich um, look about them. And I don't, I think the red colour actually comes from cosmic ray exposure, um, but if it was organic, that would be absolutely brilliant when yeah. when I when I saw the red I was like oh that's organic yeah, yeah. Um, but I think they explain it by cosmic exposure yeah thank you so much for talking to me that's alright it's been a pleasure Leanne Stadden uh, talking to Andrew Glester yes, John Ford is next <laughs> to me actually he's joined, joined us in the studio Welcome. we've just got time for uh, one last science story before we uh, come to uh, come to john who's going to be getting bristol home by the way after the news so uh, stay uh, uh stay with us for that uh, the excellent john ford getting bristol home now our last story is about flies and uh, i have uh, well there's someone in my family who is absolutely 
just goes berserk when a housefly comes in. Oh, really? So this is absolutely terrible. It's unclear. Well, I've been going, look, it's not that bad. Apparently it is. It is yeah. pretty bad. It's According worse, to this it's story, thought, anyway. <laughs> really, really bad. So what's, uh, um, Hannah, what's the, what, what is all what's this What's the about? deal? Um, yeah, so they, there's done some research, some swabbing of flies, I'm guessing, to find out what kind of bacteria they carry yeah. with them. And this is combined houseflies and blowflies. They found harbour uh, more than 600 different bacteria um, uh, between them, which is it's um, reported as about 351 on houseflies and about 316 different bacteria. Uh, sorry, is it microbes? Uh, bacteria and other things. And this, is, this is because flies don't wash their hands. <laughs> this <laughs> I is don't the think thing. they're very hygienic. They tend to hang around in trash yeah. and on decomposing things, oh. which is probably where they pick all this up. Yeah. I, I think I have an incredibly naive uh, view about flies, and it's based on the fact that they're so tiny. You well, know, you know what I mean. They can possibly so, hold that so, many things. They're so, so small. <laughs> yeah. So clearly, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not uh, thinking. Oh well, it's okay to have flies walk all over your food and everything. I, I get that completely. Mm. But you know, to have one, you know, have a have a fly come in and just land on a surface didn't bother me that much. But mm. apparently, we should be more concerned. Do you think it should become neurotic? I think, I think slightly concerned. I don't think people should be uh, neurotic about this, um, especially as like if you live in too clean an environment in your house, you, you disinfect everything too often yeah. you you weaken your own immune system exactly by being you have another another kind of a problem don't exactly you? but some of the uh, some of the microbes they found on the flies have been linked to like uh, stomach bugs blood and blood air poisoning and even pneumonia so they do carry some harmful things so you don't really want to eat something that's been left out for a long time no. with lots of flies all over that's definitely not something to do okay um can i just say to any spiders yeah. listening don't, <laughs> don't worry um i know your diet consists entirely of flies mm-hmm. but uh, just just chop around you know go for some um i don't know mosquitoes <laughs> something else i don't know yeah, what else. other bugs yeah. things like that do, think of the spiders though joking yeah. i leave spiders in my house because i really don't like flies so i lo- yeah. I, lo- I allow the spiders to stay and yes, have it with me but um, Spi- not, not the flies spider phobia is not a good thing because they're such useful animals yeah, thanks yeah, spiders exactly. certainly certainly here in britain we, <laughs> we have very little <laughs> they're, they're pretty much good thing wherever yeah. you see them exactly. um, and as i just said earlier we're, we're delighted to be joined by uh, uh, uh john ford hello uh, hiya john no flies on him no the film the fly though could the, yeah could, could that come true i mean if if fly dna got into a human being would you know human turn into a fly or fly turn into a human or oh. Oh, now you're asking i don't think so but you know i don't yes. want i don't want to dash the dreams of any budding scientists out there but um, we just want to say that it would isn't be real by the way <laughs> sure, no star trek you should tell your friend over there <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i've given up trying to separate reality from fantasy with andrew so, is there anything uh, big we missed? Do you I've, think I've, this I've, week I've got a huge look. Look at this. Look That's at this. I've got a, a huge hey. list. We're going to have to carry <laughs> oh on with this after goodness. four o'clock. But you're very welcome to stay for that. Do you want some space stuff or non-space stuff that happened on this day? Oh, let's have I some like non, non-space yeah, stuff. non-space stuff for a change. Non-space Sorry, stuff. We'll yeah. go way back in time to this day in 1826. Um, a fella in the UK in Stockton on Tees actually called John Walker invented something very important on this day. Any idea who John Walker Walker's was and what he invented? No. Uh-huh. No. Uh. He invented the the first practical strike anywhere friction match. 
He invented the mm. matchstick today. Oh, oh very right. important piece of science. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It was very good. And um, he, he refused to patent it as well. Stupid hey. reason. <laughs> Stupid My reason, goodness, uh, can you imagine? Can you imagine if he yeah. patented like the fellow who um, invented the cat's eye? Yeah. Patented it and he got a portion of a penny for every single cat's eye in the country. <sighs> he died a very rich man. Apparently. Yeah. We got 10 seconds for one more, John. 1834. Happy birthday to the electric motor invented by Thomas Davenport on this desk. Uh, just <laughs> to say thank you so much for uh, joining us. Don't forget to stay tuned for uh, John's show after the news, getting uh, Bristol home and. And we look forward to having your company again next week from Andrew, Hannah and me. Goodbye. And science.